Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the government's biggest diversity problem may not be the one you think. The fact that the federal government is old is a problem. And it's nothing to do with the individual employees who happen to be aging in place. Uh, It's simply that any healthy organization is going to have a mix of people from very young to reasonably old. The Great Resignation does affect the federal workforce even if no one leaves. Companies cannot recruit, retain the talent they need to perform their missions and so are undertaking heroic measures. The government needs to understand that that's the environment that they'll face as they try to recruit and retain talent. And the growth plan for the Defense Innovation Unit. We do want to increase the scale and impact of what we're doing. We want to make sure there's further outreach to other parts of the country to access innovation. It's Thursday, February 17th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Speed and agility in buying software is one of the new Army acquisition leaders' top priorities. Doug Bush says his service's main software buying problem is funding flexibility. Bush swore in as Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology last Friday. Alondra Nelson will take over the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy on an acting basis. Nelson's OSTP's Deputy Director for Science and Society now. She's replacing Eric Lander until the White House nominates a permanent replacement. Lander resigned after allegations of demeaning staff. His resignation takes effect tomorrow. You can read more on these and lots of other news stories at fedscoop.com. We've opened up nominations now for the best bosses in federal IT. We're honoring the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. You can file those nominations now. We'll bring out the list of finalists March 28th, and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. New data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission shows the federal workforce leads the civilian labor force in some areas, but it's behind the civilian labor force in one area that probably won't surprise you. Jeff Neal is a member of the board of Ascendre. He's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are your takeaways from the EEOC numbers just came out? Welcome. Thank you. Uh, You know, Francis, it's it's kind of funny because when I looked at that, report, the first thing I thought was, well, yeah, obviously, it's there's nothing in there that surprised me at all. And I, I can tell you why. You know, when, when you look at the EEOC data, they compared it to the civilian labor force. And I think if you compare it to the civilian labor force, particularly when you are looking at um, what, what people have been referred to as the great resignation, a lot of people have left the civilian labor force in the last couple of years. And some of the data I've seen says that the people leaving, a lot of people leaving are people who are retiring early. Uh, people are, um, you know, are basically saying they've had it and they leave. And there hasn't been as much of that in the government. I think the the major difference between the government and the civilian labor force, and and I would love to see the data if it were available, um, I think the major difference is the federal government has a robust pension plan. 
And there is a reason to stay with the federal government as an employer because they have a robust pension plan. If you could get data on the civilian labor force in companies that offer pensions and compare that to the federal government, I bet it wouldn't be much different. Mm. I think what you would find is people, you know, people used to think that, that, that pensions were something that were done uh, partly to retain a workforce because they help make the employees a little more sticky. Uh, and also because it was the right thing to do. You know, it was, we don't want people getting old and being destitute. Uh, and so pension plans were a great idea. And I think if, if more people in the private sector had good pension plans, they would see the kind of retention the federal government has. Federal government also has the, the disadvantage of being really lousy at hiring young people. Uh, and, and you've seen these numbers. We've mm -hmm. talked about them before. Yep. Uh, and if you're really lousy at hiring young people and you have employees who tend to stay for the long haul, what's going to happen is something that you may not have noticed this, but I've noticed it when I look in the mirror, uh, they get old. And, and so, you know, people are getting older because, because people age and then the government does not have a really healthy pipeline of young people coming in to help bring their numbers, their average age down and, and, and change a lot of those numbers. So what you have is a, a workforce that's kind of aging in place. They also said that you know federal employees tend to be paid higher as they got older. Uh, that's true. Uh, they get step increases. And those step increases uh, in the general schedule are equal to about 30% of the base pay once you get through the entire cycle of getting them and they take years to get so you don't get to the step 10 of your grade until you've been around a long time so so i don't think there was anything surprising in there um the thing that was disappointing in there was that um with all the time with, with, with a workforce that has a greater representation of African-Americans and a greater representation of Hispanics than the civilian labor force as a whole, uh, the federal government still hasn't managed to, to provide completely equal opportunity uh, as far as grade level goes. And uh, you would have hoped after all these years of working on that, that the government would be doing better on moving uh, women and minorities into more senior jobs. And right now it looks like they're, they're not horrendously bad, but they're not anywhere near as good as they could be. Uh, I do not see what you uh, claimed a moment ago on this Zoom call. You look as youthful and vital as <laughs> you have in all the years that I've known you. I do see what you're referring to about getting older when I look in the mirror. So sure. I, I can relate to that. Um, the number that you're referring to and that I mentioned is not being surprising. 54% of the civilian labor force is made up of employees 40 years and older. 72% of the federal workforce is made up of people 40 years and older. Um, you mentioned a couple of things there. The, the thing about the pension, I've, I thought, and I'm just shooting from the hip here, Jeff, it strikes me as maybe a little counterintuitive because if more people are leaving in the private sector where pension plans are not as prevalent, then it seems to me, as you said, the idea that they don't have a pension plan would seem to me to make them want to stay at least in the workforce, if not in the same job, 
longer rather than retiring early because they're not maybe as financially secure as some for the long haul as somebody that has a pension. Well, you know, one of the things you find if you talk to financial experts, and I know over the years you've talked to a lot of people who are experts on retirement and, and talk about uh, how that how retirement planning works for federal employees. Um, it's surprising how many people are wrong about how much money they need in retirement. Uh-huh. You know, they, I, I think a lot of people think, first of all, a lot of people think that social security will be there for them. And, you know, that's going to be a big chunk of their income. I have no doubt social security will be there for them. Uh, I have a lot of doubt that it will be a large piece of their income. It's just, it's not. So, so that's an issue. Um, I, I think what has happened in the last few years, though, and I've said I've seen a number of of uh, financial experts talking about this. They say that that people have ended up in the last few years with more money than they thought they would have. You know, we we had a lot of people who who used to spend a lot of money. People don't really realize how much, but the people spend a lot of money commuting, and all of a sudden, a lot of them stopped commuting. Um, you know, I know people who I, I used to see every time I, I saw them wearing a, a suit and a tie and nice crisp white shirt. And now I see them sitting there in gray t-shirts and it's, you know, it's just a different look. Pointing at me as you're making that comment for those that can't see us on this Zoom call, Jeff. But, Go um, ahead. But, but people started saving money and then the stock market over the last three years or so had a ridiculous run. And people who thought they might be, you know, 10 years from retirement, all of a sudden start looking at their retirement accounts, at their thrift savings plan, their IRA, their 401k. And it's like, wow, I have a lot more money than I thought I did. And I think that um, probably has motivated some people to leave. And I do think there's a, a degree of, um, of an effort factor that, that comes into play with some people where they're just sick of work, they're sick of bosses, they're sick of commuting, they're sick of everything. And it's like, you know, if I've got a chance to just stop working, then, you know, I'm going to. Yeah, I think I know somebody that that applies to, but uh, we'll leave that as it is. Um, Anything that you saw in this EEOC report that's particularly troubling to you, Jeff? Uh, You mentioned the the fact that the translation of the broader diversity of the workforce hasn't shifted up the GS chain and into the SES yet. Is that maybe the biggest thing that you think is uh, where there's room for improvement or something else here that jumped out at you is something that is, is bothersome? Well, I think there's clearly room for improvement with uh, advancement of uh, women and certain minority groups to um, senior positions. And um, I would have hoped that more progress would have been made on that than has been. Um, so so that's the thing that, that concerns me the most. And frankly, you know, although I have nothing against old people, since I am one. We are one. Yes. Um, it really concerns me that the federal government just doesn't have young people anymore. Um, there are a lot of reasons why that's really, really bad. You know, if you think about who's going to be who, who's going to be running the federal government, you know, ten years from now, uh, people who 
aren't in the workforce right now should be moving into mid-level management jobs in 10 years. They're not there. Uh, If you look at bringing different ideas and different perspectives into the workforce, and I I know people get mad at me and say, oh, how, how dare you say that old people can't have ideas? Yeah, old people can have ideas, but not necessarily the same ideas you're going to get from a 22-year-old. You're going to get a very – talk to a 22-year-old and tell me that you're going to come up with the same ideas that he or she will come up with. Mm-hmm. You will not. Mm-hmm. You will come up with totally different ideas. And so they're missing They're missing an important perspective. And, and you know, one of the things I loved about working with younger people is they would come in completely untainted by the way we had done things and point out the idiocy of some of the stuff that we did. And it was incredibly helpful to have that kind of perspective come in. And sometimes I would tell them, you know, you're full of it. You're just totally wrong. But sometimes I would say, yeah, you know, you're right. We haven't looked at this that way. We should look at it this way. And we're going to change how we're doing things. So, so I think that the fact that the federal government is old is a problem. And it's nothing to do with the individual employees who happen to be aging in place. Uh, It's simply that any healthy organization is going to have a mix of people from very young to reasonably old. And the federal government doesn't have that healthy mix. It is it's either gray or bald, you know, so it's. We, we come in on the bald side. Well, of that's it, right. right. And that's right. And we can say that and we can have a laugh at it because we both are both. It's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on, Jeff Neal. Good to see you too, Francis. You can find a link to the EEOC data in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Friday's show, a data download from the Office of Personnel Management and the entire government. Ted Kalk, the Chief Data Officer at OPM and the Chair of the Chief Data Officers Council will be here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Senate will vote on a continuing resolution today or tomorrow that will keep the government open through the middle of March. Appropriations leaders in Congress say they're close to a deal that would let them pass appropriations bills for every agency by the time that CR expires. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's former Associate Director in the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I guess the fact that we get a CR through March 11th, it's not the worst thing in the history of the universe, not ideal. Is it at least a sign that it appears it's to stretch us out for Congress to cross the T's and dot the I's on a funding vehicle for the rest of this fiscal year? Welcome. Uh, Thanks, Francis. I I think it's important to reflect on the fact that we are not yet in agreement on a budget six months into the fiscal year, though leadership in Congress has announced agreement on a framework presumably top levels for civilian and defense so that they can now spend the next month working on the details. Um, I think it's worth celebrating. Should we get a full year budget enacted? Um, But it's also something to decry the fact that we regular order never seems to materialize. um, and, And this year's not only no exception, it's worse than most. It strikes me. The timeline is almost exactly one year behind right shouldn't 
Congress be at least starting to formulate the top line numbers for what they're thinking about for the next fiscal year instead of the one that we're in? I mean, isn't that I can't remember when it happened the right way, but it strikes me that that formulation should be happening at least behind the scenes. So when the president's budget request comes out, work can begin immediately apace. I'm going to get a little Gordian on you. Oh, geez. The, 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 uh, the, the president should have submitted to Congress his FY23 request last week. Um, but he missed that deadline because he doesn't have a baseline to work with because they don't even have the damn budget from this year enacted. Yeah. Um, and of course, the previous year's budget um, expired in September. Um, so, but agencies are working under, you know, some fraction of, of those that those budget numbers for the first six months into this year. So you're right. We are way behind. You're obviously a big management guy. And uh, by the way, love the Napa event that you hosted a couple of weeks ago with Dustin Brown and some other folks from uh, the office of management and budget about the PMA. How does this delay impact an administration, any administration on trying to be able to implement their management principles? Well, um, it impacts those significantly. Uh, it delays things. So, you know, we expected with the budget to see the goals, detailed goals associated with the president's management agenda announced at that time. There's a delay in that. Um, agencies are scrambling, working under a continuing resolution, scrambling to produce a lot of the management documents that will govern their operations over the next year, their strategic plan, annual performance plan and report, of course, their budget. Um you know, and, and some major priorities are impacted. Uh, the much celebrated bipartisan infrastructure bill is hampered because a lot of the administrative funding associated with that is tied up in the uh, FY22 budget agreement. So until that gets done, a lot of those programs are going to be um, uh, delayed getting out of the gate. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to support the infrastructure. You know, the agencies that, no, but what I mean is the agencies that are going to support that will have to put their infrastructures in place to support what happens for building bridges and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you know better than most that agencies struggle with major management challenges, seemingly intractable around uh, personnel, finance, IT, you're you're talking about agencies that have had significant infusions of cash over and above their regular appropriations. They're having to meet those challenges with fewer resources, fewer people, longstanding challenges that haven't been solved. So operating under continuing resolution, no administrative fundings for, for some of these new programs. It's a significant hindrance to their ability to execute. How do you manage around that? How do you figure out how to make that work? Unfortunately, the institutions across government have learned to manage under a continuing resolution. Uh, Whether they will crack as a result of this, these new requirements, new infusions of funds um, remains to be seen. But I think there's a real opportunity to recruit talent based on these new ambitious agendas. Hopefully they can leverage uh, those. Um, and, and as the pandemic subsides, hopefully normalization 
will seep in and, and we can get to cranking up the recruitment, the retention, the engagement strategies that help focus people uh, on executing these important agenda items. Well, if the person that I spoke to the other day who's trying to apply for a job in the federal government is any indicator, we don't want normalization of that process. That's right. That needs to be fixed before we can move at any kind of speed. Because that process that I heard about from the user's perspective, the customer experience that we keep hearing about wasn't so hot still. No, and I I see hiring reform as a lower level priority for this administration. They want to strengthen the workforce, restore some of the respect that that workforce should have uh, retained in any case. But uh, if the public sector, if federal government is going to compete with the private sector for talent in a market like this one, we are in the middle of a labor crisis. Companies cannot recruit, retain the talent they need to perform their missions, and so are undertaking heroic measures to recruit people, including speeding the process, raising the amount of money you have to offer to hire people. The government needs to understand that that's the environment that they'll face as they try to recruit and retain talent. What are the things that you're going to be paying attention to besides the uh, the whatever happens with funding uh, as far as how to deal with some of these management challenges, Robert. Well, I, you know, the, the once we get the FY22 appropriations agreed to and signed, um, uh, you know, we're quickly going to move into the midterms. Uh, I'll, I'll watch closely the president's FY23 budget request, mostly for the non-budgetary items included therein, uh, because I don't expect FY23 appropriations to be enacted in the middle of midterms or beyond. You'd love so that. I, every year, that's what you go, you tell me that every year. I'm going to go to the non-budgetary items in the back of the book. Uh, you Do you know, still get the book, by the way? Do you still no, you still get the paper copy? I don't, but it, you know, I've got some old ones. I should put them as a prop in no, the back here. No, so you shouldn't. Yeah. No, you shouldn't. That's here, fine. I'll be right back. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, so what's in there? You were probably about to tell me when I interrupted you, um, but what's in there that is so important? Um, you know, agency congressional justifications will include or or things that will be released at the same time will be agency strategic plans, uh, agency performance plans and reports, the first agency learning agenda. So these are the big research topics that agencies need answered in order to better accomplish their missions. And I think that'll be a major milestone in strengthening the foundation for evidence-based policymaking across government. You were involved with that somehow, I think. It's true. It's true. There was a commission or something that you were on. I'm I'm teasing. I tease you about that all the time because I love it. You're very proud of that service and you should be proud of your service on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. It's good work. It's the Lord's work in the devil's city. All right, my friend. It's great to see you again, Robert Shea. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the next CR in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A reminder, you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow. Then Monday, we're off for the federal holiday. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Tuesday, the 22nd. 
Six new commercial solutions are in use across the Defense Department thanks to the Defense Innovation Unit. Those six solutions bring the grand total of commercial solutions DIUs facilitated to 35. Mike Brown is director of the Defense Innovation Unit. Mike, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. I take that data from your fiscal year 2021 annual report. What in that work is most significant in your view? What I'll be, I'll be real straight about it. What uh, accomplishment would you like to brag on in fiscal 21? Welcome, Mike. Well, thanks for having me, Francis. I think what's uh, significant is that the investment that the department has made in the Defense Innovation Unit is paying off now. You can see that in the number of transitions that uh, we're making happen. Uh, you highlighted six uh, from fiscal year 21. But I think more significant is that we're facilitating uh, larger production volume contracts. So from uh, the transitions that occurred last year, we saw $1.8 billion in production contracts uh, for vendors that we've introduced. That's four times the production value uh, from the previous year. So now we're starting to see more vendors coming in, larger contract values, which means more significant business with the Department of Defense. That's why DIU was set up in the first place. And I think that in turn encourages more investment by the private sector in these technologies that the department needs. That's a virtuous circle that we want to continue to reinforce. What do you intend to do to reinforce that, to perpetuate that cycle, Mike? Uh, doing more projects that bring in more vendors. In fact, uh, we started 37 projects uh, last year. That's twice our historical average. Uh, we uh, issued more production contracts, 30% more last year than we did uh, uh, the previous year. We've worked with over 1,100 vendors on their submissions uh, last year. We've received submissions over our time at DIU from 46 states and about 11 countries. So we're expanding the reach of where we're going to access the innovation that occurs globally, but primarily here in the U.S., and making sure we get the best capabilities for our warfighters. You used a term recently to that end that I think is really interesting. You wrote in TechCrunch not too long ago, DOD needs to become a fast follower, adapting and integrating commercial technologies not developed by the DOD to solve defense problems. What's kind of a, a, a more meaty definition of what that term fast follower means to you, Mike? Yeah, fast follower really is distinguished from the areas where DOD is leading in technology development, like hypersonics. So in that area, we're working with vendors on exactly what we need and, and pioneering technology. Most of what the department needs these days, 11 of the 14 technologies that uh, Heidi Shu, the Undersecretary for Research Engineering, has highlighted the department needs. 11 of those 14 are commercial, being led by the private sector. Areas like AI, cyber, autonomous systems, biotechnology. So in these areas, if we're not first to market, uh, we're going to need to be fast following the first to market, which basically means how do we have a system at DOD that ensures that we get access to that technology and we can work with those commercial vendors on their terms? How early in the cycle would you like to be ideally in that process of working with those potential vendors uh, to, to get access to that technology? Really, we'd like to be working with them up front as they think about what applications uh, there will be for their technology. But anytime that uh, those companies are uh, able to bring us something that we can test, that's effectively when we could start working with them on a, on a 
you wrote in that TechCrunch piece that there are three areas you'd like to see action uh, regarding this fast follower concept. First one, solving problems directly with available commercial solutions instead of being bound by defense-specified requirements for custom military solutions. That requirements piece has confounded people for probably since there's been a Defense Department in 1947 and maybe the War Department before that. What breaks that cycle, do you think, and who needs to do what to break that cycle, Mike? I think it's recognizing that uh, for many of these technology areas, we're not developing the technology. We will continue to develop it for aircraft carriers, fighter aircraft, hypersonics. But in these areas I just talked about, again, 11 of the 14 we need, we need a complementary system to um, uh, developing requirements and working with the federal acquisition regulations. There's really four elements to it. One, recognizing you don't need requirements. That allows you to go much, much faster. We spend up to a decade writing requirements for new platforms. Second, uh, it means that we've got to have an organizational home because these commercial technologies might not naturally fit Air Force, Navy, or Army. So an organizational home for small drones or digital wearables. And that organizational home needs to be funded with a consistent budget because we have to recognize here it's not program a record, one vendor for 40 years of production. It's continually assessing what the commercial market has to offer. Choosing new vendors, whoever the best uh, vendor is, and then refreshing the technology that our warfighters have. And then lastly, it's using commercial terms. DIU's pioneered this with other transaction authority and our commercial solutions opening. We need to see that adopted on a much more uh, a widespread basis uh, so that we can make sure we're working again with commercial vendors on their terms and at their speed. That's really what a commercial acquisition framework does. And it maximizes competition and minimizes the burden on companies working with us. And that's gonna encourage more companies to work with DOD. The section, uh, second action item that you wrote about is streamlining acquisitions, moving at commercial speed and scaling opportunities. And it strikes me the most important one of those elements is moving at commercial speed because you want access to that technology in that timeline that you just talked about. Does that idea of an organizational home and some of the other things that you just talked about in, in action area one facilitate that moving at commercial speed in your view, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really the most underrepresented dimension of competition at DOD today. Uh, we've had technological supremacy in the U.S. for so long, uh, we almost don't recognize what it is to be in a race. Uh, we had that with the Soviets, uh, you know, 60 years ago in the Cold War, but we're in a race now with China. And this is what makes DIU's mission so important and so urgent. Uh, we have to make sure that while China compels companies to work with the PLA, uh, we have a system that makes uh, it easier, encourages companies to work to support uh, the U.S. military. Speed is a critical dimension in that. If we, if we don't get that right, if we expect commercial companies to work at DOD traditional speeds, we're, we're not going to be able to attract them. No, that's right. And it strikes me that the concept there is similar to what a four-star told me uh, not too long ago about partners, countries all over the world regarding the competition with China, that we should aspire to be the partner of choice for uh, a country when they're choosing between us and China, if that choice becomes necessary to them. And not that our companies would choose either us or China, but that they, they would choose to work with the Defense Department rather than not working with the Defense Department. Partner of choice sounds like maybe the kind of concept that you're going for. Uh, absolutely right. I think the asymmetric advantage that uh, we have in the U.S. is the ability to work with allies and partners. Uh, we have a well-developed uh, system there, 
And from BIU standpoint, we need to be accessing their technology. So the U.S. doesn't have a corner on uh, advanced technology in these areas like AI and, and cyber and autonomous systems. So if we can work with Australian companies, British companies, Canadian companies, we're going to access the best that the world has to offer to provide the U.S. military. The third item you wrote about is building flexibility into the budgeting process, and you note that it takes th- up to three years to program and spend a dollar on defense. Um, that's that's something that there's really only 535 people in the world that can do anything about that, right? And and even among those people, the the audience in that cohort is rather small, I suppose. Well, I think it's uh, it's broader than Congress. Of course, we need Congress's support for this, but really the Defense Department can lead here in reforming what's called the PPB&E process, uh, planning, programming, budgeting, and execution. So this is a Defense Department uh, process. It's not mandated by Congress. It's the one we've been working with for 60 years since Secretary McNamara was, uh, was at the department. And we have to recognize that while that does some things well, it's not suited for speed um, or unpredictable outcomes. So it's a very linear process uh, and it's not suited for commercial technology. It's not suited for the competition we face with China. So we need to lead in reforming that uh, the Congress uh, has a commission set up, the PPB commission uh, that comes out of the NDAA. I expect they'll be making some recommendations well, but we can't wait for that. We need to start making the changes today so that we can more consistently apply budget for emerging threats and some of the technologies, new technologies that will address those threats. Waiting three years to spend a dollar is not a way to win in a competition that is based on time. I mentioned your uh, annual report for fiscal 2021. We have a link to it at thedailyscooppodcast.com, and I commend that to anybody that wants to get a sense of the work that you've done over the past year. Do you set goals for fiscal 22 or for fiscal 22 through some fiscal year in the future? Um, and if so, what we are do, the, uh, yeah, what we are are the benchmarks? deciding what projects we're going to be doing uh, in those timeframes because that really comes from DOD mission partners. We're continuously looking at the most important problems that we can work on where there's a commercial nexus of vendors. But we do want to increase the scale and impact of what we're doing. We want to make sure there's further outreach to other parts of the country to access innovation. We just held yesterday a session with North Carolina Defense Tech to make sure we're encouraging companies in the Southeast to working with us. We're opening a Chicago office this year. So there is innovation, brain power to be tapped across the country. And as I mentioned before, with allies and partners, and we want to be accessing more of that as we go forward. Mike, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations on your success in FY21. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for having me. You can find that link to Mike's TechCrunch column in the DIU annual report in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, the Chief Data Officer at OPM, Ted Kalk. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.